This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in Chelsea, London. It gives me great pleasure to be in conversation today with Selina Hastings, author of a new biography of Sybil Bedford, published by Chateau at £25. Selina has kindly agreed to a live chat with, of course, appropriate social distancing, which is of something of a relief to us both, I think. Um, so welcome, Selina. Thank you. Um, now, I know why I am interested in Sybil Bedford, because she bought books from us in the old Church Street she oh, lived, she? and um, I well remember visiting her with boxes of books, uh, boxes of copies of Quicksands, her autobiography, for her to sign. Um, and we've had more advance orders for this book than almost any book I remember, even allowing for the possibility that people have nothing better to do during lockdown than browse our catalogue. <laughs> Tell me why, Selina, you think that people are interested in her. Who was she? I'm, I was quite surprised that she did attract so much interest, that she wasn't a very, isn't a very well-known writer. But she had the most extraordinary life and from the time of her childhood in Germany and then living in France, England, Italy, the United States with a stream of different lovers, most of them in the literary world, um, it was just an extraordinary path to follow. And she, in spite of her name, she's not at all English, in fact. No, no, is she? she's German, and she was born Sibyl von Schoenbeck, and her father was an impoverished German baron, Maximilian von Schoenbeck. With an histoire of his own. With an histoire of his own. He was a great womanizer, but he never did anything like uh, read a book, or he loved animals and beautiful women, but he liked beautiful women who weren't very intelligent, just beautiful. And unfortunately, he then, almost by mistake, married a very beautiful woman who was also extremely intelligent. And that marriage was a disaster, but the be one good result was they had this child, Sybil. And did they think that was a good result? No. Um, her father, Maximilian, was furious that he wasn't a boy and her mother Lisa was furious because she was about to leave her husband and then the moment she got pregnant she realised she was trapped. And how did that entrapment play out for her, for the mother, for Lisa? For Lisa? Mm. Well Lisa was very tough, clever, self-centred and did exactly what she pleased. So although they moved to a small village in rural Bavaria on the border of, near the border of France, uh, Lisa was forever going off. She would go to Berlin or she would go uh, to Denmark to see her, had a Danish lover in Denmark. She had lovers all over the place. Um, and eventually, of course, she left. And Sybil was left alone with her father. I was going to say, how did it play out for Sybil? Then left alone with her father and grandmother? It's her grandmother lived in Hamburg and during the war when Sybil and her parents moved from the country to live with the family of Maximilian's first wife <laughs> who were wealthy Jewish family and so they lived with them and then um, 
Sybil was then sent off to live with her grandmother in Hamburg and she adored, as it was safer than Berlin obviously, she adored her grandmother and it was dreadful for her when at the end of the war she had to go back to be with her parents who were completely indifferent to her. And so that was for several years this this, this strange um, being passed passed around like a parcel for in, until she was how old? Until well, she was born in 1911, so she was very young during the during the war, the First World War, and so she would have been what about seven, six, seven when it came when they eventually her mother left, went to live in France, went to live in um, Italy. Um, and so she and her father went back to the Schloss at this little village of Felkirch, uh, where they lived together in a sort of very, very strange, lonely atmosphere with no money. Um, all the animals had gone, the horses had gone, been taken by the army, and um, they had very little to live on. So she experienced, as a young child, she experienced the extreme inflation and the poverty of 20s Germany. She yes, I mean, comparative. I mean, she that they were not starving. I mean, they mm. they were not poor like so many of the population was. I mean, they had this little estate. You know, they could grow vegetables and mm. milk cows and things like that. So they were not starving, but they were poor. And she had a half sister by her father's first marriage. Yes, um, and. At some point, um, you describe her doing a bunk from father's house. Yes, she did. And she went to stay with her sister, Katzi, in Wiesbaden. She ran away. And she had the most wonderful time because Katzi was adorable. She was very sociable. She loved parties. She loved Sybil. I don't think she ever read a book or anything like that. But, you know, she was very loving. And her husband was also very, very nice to Sybil. And she had a wonderful time there, eventually was joined by her father, and they spent, I think, several, probably a couple of months there before they had to go back to their dreary little village. And back to the dreary little village they went, and, but at, again, at a certain point, Sybil makes her own exit to, uh, or her father dies. Her father dies. That's right. At which point she then goes to she live with her mother. She then goes to join her mother. Who is in the south, well, she's in Italy. She's in Italy and she has just, although Sybil didn't know it, she had just remarried. So, uh, remarried <laughs> um, somebody much younger than much herself. Much younger, very handsome, charming, delightful, intelligent young Italian called Norberto Marcassani and always known as Nori. And he was exactly halfway in age between Sybil and her mother. He was nearly 20 years younger than her mother and 20 years older than Sybil. And so he and Sybil became great allies. And that really was life-changing for her. And in the context, allies means that after they've, they've settled together in Sanary in, on, in south of France, and her mother then becomes rattled with drink and drugs yes and when you say allies it's partly in dealing with the mother at that in oh very much so yes I mean Lisa her mother became absolutely impossible she became a hopeless drug addict uh, was on morphine 24 mm. hours a day mm. which Sybil had to supply for her which is 
not always easy. But at that stage, luckily, she had met this very, very nice English couple, Aldous and Maria Huxley, who became sort of parents in place of parents for her. And they, they really protected her and looked after her in a way that um, I don't know what would happen to her yeah. if they hadn't. But it's, it, and it, it's at that point, really, that her own life, adult life, self-determining life, takes off yes. under the Huxleys, under really, the Huxleys, under their wing. Because they, in, I mean, she, her mother was an avid reader, as I said, in three languages, so she was very well read. But of course, the Huxleys' world was someone, something completely new to her. And so um, she was very grateful to them. Maria, the wife, was a sort of mother to her, and Aldous was a rather sort of, um, kind but detached sort of tutor figure who would uh, instruct her to read Pliny and Socrates and so on and mm. so forth. Um, mm. But it became her second home. Um, it became particularly important uh, with the uh, rise of fascism and with Sybil's need to get away from France as you describe it suddenly from this rather sybaritic life she suddenly gets into a, a terrible difficulty which so many people did get into of realizing that her german papers were which she'd uh, had her nationality taken away at some point well no she was she, she, she was german she had a german passport but every year she'd get a french carte d'identité allowing her to yeah. remain in France, and then suddenly that was withheld. That was withheld, but you described why the, her German nationality was, was then withdrawn, or rescinded. It wasn't withdrawn, but she was in a very dangerous situation suddenly, living in France with a German passport, and whereas at the beginning the French had been very welcome welcoming to the German emigres, particularly mm. in the south of France, because most of them were very rich anyway and cultivated mm. and famous writers like Thomas Mann, you know. Um, but suddenly just too many of them were coming over, uh, were pouring in, and the French didn't want them there. And so the Huxleys realised that they must get Sybil out of France and to England and to find her an English husband. As Aldous uh, um, put it, to find her a bugger bridegroom. Um, and this is what her friend Erica Mann had done. She'd gone to England and she'd married an Englishman she'd never met before called W.H. Auden. And so she was, you know, safe. It's fascinating, all that um, connection, also because of, of Klaus. I found that interesting. Yes, yes. And, and uh, the, what I was hinting at about the withdrawal of German citizenship, something happened when uh, Sybil wrote her first published piece for Klaus. Oh yes, exactly. And at the very end of it, the last two paragraphs, she suddenly changed tack on what she'd been writing about um, to attack uh, the German, the regime, the Nazi regime in Germany, and, and that's what did it for her. At which point, suddenly, it's critical for her to get out, Absolutely. to get papers. Absolutely. So she finds Walter Bedford, always found Walter Bedford yes. in London, whom she marries. and They have one evening out at the London Palladium and 
that's it, never saw each other again. It's a hilarious description yeah. in a way. But, it, yeah. but of course, it's, for them, it's life and death. Yes, it, absolutely, um, of course it is. And a hundred pounds for Walter Bedford, which was very good, good for Walter Bedford. Those days, yes. good, good evening's earnings, <laughs> yes. I suppose. Um, after um, that, she goes to America, and you describe her pretty much waiting um, in America during the war, um, where she spends time with the Mans in California, but doesn't like it. Why doesn't she like America? Uh, she considered California rather vulgar, and uh, it was a bit flashy and all that Hollywood stuff. You know, she wasn't wasn't her sort of thing. And so, she, after a few months, she and her then friend and lover called Alana Harper moved to New York. And in fact, she she felt a little guilty about this later. She had a very easy, enjoyable war. I mean, the years she spent, war years she spent in York were extremely enjoyable. And she was in a, thanks to Alana mainly, she was in a, a sort of circle of writers and, you know, very journalist, intelligent people who, and she was supported by Alana and she lived very well and she had a pretty good time. And but wanting, worried about Europe and wanting to get back there, but couldn't. She wanted to get back there at the end of the war, but so did everybody else. Yeah. And so it was impossible to get passage on a, on a transatlantic liner. Um, so she was stuck. And went instead? And went instead to Mexico. Um, she wanted, she was then, she had three main three lovers in her life were all women, they were all American and their first names all began with E and this one was Esther and Esther was quite wealthy, reasonably wealthy and so she and Sybil were able to afford to go down to Mexico and they spent eight months there exploring the country which Sybil was absolutely fascinated by and which bored Esther to death but it didn't really matter <laughs> because she always read, she was always reading and when they were travelling she never looked up from a book <laughs> but uh, she, was a, she was clever and she was delightful and she was a very good friend always to Sybil. Mm. Eventually Sybil gets back to Europe yeah. um, and um, starts writing properly, but it's a slow process. She writes um, her book about Mexico, which now we know as Visit to Don Ottavio, but was published as A Sudden, a sudden View. view. Um, and uh, then some years later, she writes A Legacy. Um, tell us about A Legacy. Well, it's, it's curious in a way that all Sybil's fiction is focused on that one part of her life mm, mm. that she lived in Germany and on her parents' life, on her parents' past, but more than anything on her own experience. And she just wrote about it. She wrote about it in The Legacy. She wrote about it in the two not very good novels she after a legacy, and then finally, in I think her best novel, Jigsaw, 
she goes through the whole thing again and then again, and then again when quicksand. she reads her final book, yeah. uh, Quicksand. It's curious this. It obsessed her, completely obsessed her. This, this, the, her childhood, her young life, before she meets the Huxes, before she becomes yes. self-determining, is the food for yeah. all her writing, well, all Yeah, Jigsaw, of course, is also about living in the south of France yeah. and the Huxes and so on, but still, it, exactly, it never, never left her. You, you refer in your introduction to her travelling, and you say that she always loved travelling, but um, in later life, um, you say that as time passed, the insecurities implanted in childhood began to surface. Um, and so she grew increasingly apprehensive and afraid. You, and one can see, you, you talk about that in relation to travel and her gradually reducing, certainly by old age, inclination to travel. But those insecurities implanted in childhood clearly were, were very, very significant for her work. Yes, I think they were. They were. And I think a lot of her anxiety came from the fact that she was, in a way, so insecure in childhood. I mean, neither of her parents were interested in her. Um, and although when she finally left Germany, it was a tremendous release, and in her young, you know, in her adolescent and 20s, early 30s, she felt very liberated. I think those insecurities embedded in her childhood gradually began to come to the surface more and more and she she became I mean I knew her a little bit the last sort of 15 years probably and she was always you know biting her nails about where the taxi was coming and whether she would know anyone at the party and you know mm. um, but once she was the taxi came and she had arrived at the party then she was fine and she was a great performer I mean she liked being the center of attention it's a curious phenomenon that isn't it the yes. conjunction of extreme insecurity and what uh, other outside eyes might by the, I think appear as a robustness a yes. confidence in her tastes oh very <laughs> yes and she was highly critical of other people's yes. tastes and other people and she as particularly she moved as she got older, she moved further to the right and politically, and a lot of her friends had been rather left-wing, like Martha Gellhorn, for instance. Mm. And Martha had been a wonderful friend to her, but Sybil became more and more disapproving of Martha's views, and so they eventually fell out. And in writing about her, or about them in this instance, do you find yourself sympathising with Sybil or Martha? Well, that's a very good question. but. In a way, I don't really think about it in those terms. Okay. I mean, I've always written about subjects who aren't regarded as particularly nice. I don't really do nice. Um, and I don't think being judgmental, openly judgmental, mm. is a good thing to do. I mean, what you want to do is tell the story of what happened. Yeah. And you can imply certain things, but I don't think you want to actually come out and say so-and-so behaved disgracefully or... No, you can withhold information. Yes. And you... Well, yes, you can hold opinion. 
you, you um, do present many opinions of Sibyls without any judgment, um, which some people might find difficult today. Yes, they, ha they have. And, and do you think those opinions are um, reflections of us? or on the changing times? Do you think that Sybil's opinions were at variance with her contemporaries? I think most of her friends throughout her life were, if not exactly left-wing, they were sort of middle of the road. And in later life, when she became increasingly right-wing and occasionally voiced some fairly <laughs> unacceptable, in their view, opinions, um, some of them did back off. But again, she did have this tremendous warmth and charm. And although she talked a lot about herself, she was always interested in other people. Mm. So she was, her social life remained almost intact. I mean, she was always surrounded by people mm. who wanted to see her and invited to parties and so on and so forth, which meant a lot to her. Well, one of the things that comes out very strongly in your book is this uh, degree to which she was supported financially as much as emotionally by friends throughout her life. I mean, it, it's jaw-dropping, really. That was Think, extraordinary. In, including Martha Gellhorn. Well, I know, and Alana Harper, and uh, I mean, Esther Murphy. Yeah. They, and I think because she had led this very difficult childhood and had ended up with absolutely nothing and then eventually her the money she had a little money she'd inherited from her father was taken away by the germans so she really did have nothing she became completely used very early on to living off other people mm. and i think that's what she went on doing and even when at the end of her life she actually had quite a lot of money because she lived in such a such a modest way she had this tiny little one-room flat and was always you know just dressed in a shirt and trousers and waistcoat um everyone i think a lot of people went on thinking she was very hard up and so they would always pay for everything and mm. she'd been so used to that that it didn't trouble her mm. she she must have had tremendous charisma though and oh, i mean yes. she must have in order to command the loyalty of so many friends for such a long time, she yes. must have been very good at singing for her supper. Yes, she was. I mean, she she was a wonderful talker. And I think basically she was very, she was a good woman. She was, I mean, she was arrogant, she was snobbish, but basically she was a kind woman. Mm. And I think she, she really loved her friends and she loved her lovers. And they, although the affairs inevitably didn't didn't last forever i mean she always remained friends with them again that's it's a conspicuous thing that she maintains friendships like that yes with exactly ex exactly um, and again one of the things that fascinated amused me reading the book was how many of these people uh, we've come across at sandoz over the years um alana harper Martha Gellhorn, um, 
there's another delightful um, entry from Patrick Woodcock, her doctor, whom I remember. Oh, he was a great friend of mine. So he was well. a great. That was the first time I ever met Sybil was with him. How lovely, with a great potato nose. And, yes. Um, and so <laughs> and amiable and twinkly. Um, and t very, very well read. And mm. Of course, I knew everything about the theatre. Uh, mm. mm. um, Betsy Drake was yes. another one in late in life. Yes, um, and Elizabeth Jane Howard. Yeah. Um, and uh, also very conspicuously for me, Elizabeth David. You, um, in just the same way as I remember uh, Sybil, I remember talking to Elizabeth David in really? a gravelly voice on the really? phone. Um, and you write that when Sybil goes to meet her, first of all, she encounters her sister, Elizabeth David's sister, Felicity. And you say that Felicity is acting as her secretary. Yes. Now, of course, Felicity worked for 20 years at John Sandoz and was at that point, and she... she, she really? She was... A, she was a no. brilliant bookseller and is widely remembered, um, even now, fondly. Oh my goodness, I should have said that. Um, well, Felicity was, was an extraordinary character, but fierce. And, um, and did they always live together? I mean, did they live yes. together at that period? Yeah. And, um, but the fierceness you describe Elizabeth having. Um, and so say something about the relationship between Elizabeth, David and Sybil, because I th think that's Well, I think, I think Sybil was enormously impressed, first of all, by Elizabeth's writing. And then when they met, Elizabeth was a very strong character. She was a great beauty. She was enormously talented and very successful. And I think Sybil immediately felt that she was the one to be tugging the forelock to Elizabeth. Um, but she really worshipped her. I mean, she really enormously admired her. I think she felt slightly resentful at the time that Elizabeth always, you know, was the sort of prefect figure where Sybil was in the lower court. <laughs> um, but they got on very, very well. And of course, they shared this passion for great cuisine. But the, which is this other extraordinary strand with yes. Sybil Bedford. The, the, uh, well, it's wine and women, but not so much song, perhaps, but food. Um, yes, uh, um, it, it was. And I think she inherited that from her father, uh, who was in his way I mean, not professionally, of course, a, a great chef. And Sybil, as a child, would watch him, you know, cooking exquisite little dishes or a single flame. Um, whereas her mother just liked cauliflower cheese and, right. I don't know, <laughs> sausages and bacon. Um, and I think she became, she sort of inherited it from him and it became mm. something that was very, very important to her. You describe her when she's as a young woman on a, living on her own, uh, methodically setting the dinner table for one. Yes, exactly, with tablecloth and napkins and, and a candle and a... Yes, everything. I mean, it all had to be done. I, I mean, I think other people find this sometimes rather tiresome, but no, this was important to her. It, a meal, sitting down to a meal, was something that had to be done according to the rules.
and that's what she did. And these were her father's rules, in a manner of speaking. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's very interesting that is, and you describe her quoting or invoking her father teaching her to uncork. Oh well, yes. Wine, and then and then she, that became a, a passion in life for her, mm. the wine, um, which could be terribly boring sometimes for fellow guests when she would talk out about it at a great length. But she was genuinely but she deeply really, knowledgeable. Oh, clearly. deeply knowledgeable, deeply knowledgeable, yes. No, she really, really knew mm. and she really, really loved it. Mm. So it was, it was one of her great passions. And she shared that with a lot of people and taught a lot of it, yes. people over the dinner table. Yes. And some people... Rather were too bored. great a length sometimes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it, you've mentioned, is it Elizabeth Jane Howard warning other people about it? Yes, Somebody. that's right. Well, Jane, and I remember, I knew Jane quite well, and she said when Sybil came to stay with her, there'd always be two cases of wine would be sent in advance because she didn't trust Jane to have wine good enough for her <laughs> <taste>. <laughs> Which reminds me of another, uh, speaking of Patrick Woodcock, hilarious dinner you described with Patrick Woodcock. Oh, and David Hockney, yeah. yes, that, well, <laughs> that was a disaster. <laughs> will, um, you, will you re recount that? That was when Sybil and her, she had a great friend called Richard Olney, who was also a wonderful chef and knew everything about wine. And they'd been invited to dinner by Patrick Woodcock. And they said they would bring the wine. And so they decanted two incredibly important bottles of Burgundy or whatever. And then they got a taxi and each one held the decanter on their knees carefully so that it wouldn't shake in the taxi. And when they arrived, they gave them to Patrick and he put them on the table, table and they said no 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 you must put it out of the window and, and cool it and you know all that and Patrick said well we must wait for our guests to arrive and rather late David Hockney appeared and Patrick said what would you like to drink and David said oh plonk and Patrick immediately went to get one of the carafes and Sybil said no 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 <laughs> and from that moment on of course the evening went downhill and was Everyone was on on bad terms, and um, at the end of the evening, Sybil insisted that David drive her and Richard Olney home first to her flat, and he said, David Hockney said, "I'll drop you off at the end of the street." No, you're dropping me off outside my flat. <laughs> and so the minute she went inside, Hockney said to uh, Richard Olney, "Who the fuck was that old bitch?" <laughs> <laughs> And that, I think, last time they it's, met. It's, it's, it's a very funny story, that, that partly because it says something about Hockney, which is interesting, it's, yes. but partly uh, to see that she does induce that reaction yes. sometimes oh, in she people. Could be in, yes, she could be very uh, rude but at the and same, arrogant. Yeah. At the same time, Richard Olney, the other person in that equation, so to speak, adores her. Adored clearly. her. But he said they used to have these conversations in which they both agreed on, you know, what mostly what other people would think were unacceptable views about <laughs> many things. But no, they, no, he he did love her. Um, it's a funny thought again, Patrick Woodcock presiding over this disaster because you'd think if anybody Patrick. I've ever come across could 
could um, ride that. <laughs> I know, I know, so, yeah, I know. It's very funny. Um, how, how good a writer do you think she was? She, um, you, you describe, again, it's Elizabeth Jane Howard. Um, you quote her saying that she enjoyed the performance of being a writer. Yes. And uh, she uses the word operatic. Or is that your word? I can't remember. I, th I think it's I think it's James. James. It? Um, and there does always... In, in, in this, in my mind, when reading it, I do find myself asking myself, the, or faced with the question, uh, or the uh, conflict of her being a writer, and what did she actually write? Um, so how good a writer is she, and is this reputation um, fair? What, what's your feeling about her? I think... I mean, when she started off, um, and she wrote three novels under Aldous Huxley's influence, trying to imitate him, and they were really, really terrible, as she, as she later came to realise, and none of them were ever published. And I think she found her voice when she wrote her first published book, which was A Visit to Donatavio, which is wonderful. Um, and then the four novels, of the four novels, I think A Legacy, and Jigsaw are superb. The two in between are pretty poor. Mm. Um, she, sh she shows herself in those two novels, I think, as a good novelist, not perhaps a great writer, a very good writer. And the other part of her working life that I think she was extremely good at was her law reporting. Mm. And I think, for instance, her book on the trial of Bodkin Adams is superb. Mm. It's sort of uh, journalism at its top, mm. top. And it was level. valuable. Was significant for people. Sorry. That, and and it was valuable. It was important for people. The, uh, the Bodkin Adams. Yes. Yes. The law absolutely. Reporting. Oh, it was because it was the longest murder trial in British history, and mm. I mean it was covered by, you know journalists all over the world came flocking in to the Old Bailey for it. I mean, it was an extraordinary case. And then she did the Lady Chatterley trial, and then she did the mm. Jack Ruby mm. murder and so on and so forth. I mean, she loved that. And I think if she had been a man, she probably would have been a, a, a you know, a, a lawyer. And why did she love it, do you think? That's a very good question. I think she loved the drama and the discipline and the learning, mm. all those things, and the wigs, <laughs> the robes. <laughs> the formality, the formality of the theatre. The yes, because, you know, it was a form of theatre, too, for her. Yeah. Um, that, the, the, the law reporting, um, you, you say that, that had she been a man, she would have done more of it. Or um, do you think she, that being a woman, was she interested in the fact that she was a, a writer as a woman? And the, not at all. Not I at don't all. think. No. I mean, I, I don't think she thought of herself as a feminine writer. I mean, she wasn't promoting women's causes or anything like that. No. 
So she would have had no hesitation about being involved in the law reporting. Why? Why would she? And no. um, took her gloves off and yes, enjoyed I mean, she travelled all the way around Europe for one book, uh, reporting on uh, legal process in France and Germany and uh, Austria and so on. Um, and then she covered the trial of the Auschwitz guards. Mm -hmm. and, you know, she did she did a lot, and mm -hmm. she did it very well. And I think it was one of the things that meant most to her. And it it kept her that kept her extremely busy for yes, years. Yes. And, and um, was it when she was writing her I forget the timing exactly the Huxley biography that yes the delivery and the Huxley dates. biography was going to take two years, and in fact it took about. Eight, I can't remember what. But her Huxley biography is not really very good. I mean, she's she's too adulatory. I mean, she mm. writes it as though she's kneeling on the ground, worshiping orders, and it's and she sort of gives a day-to-day -day account, you know, of what they did day mm. after day. But she doesn't really step back and look at him and see him from a detached point of view at all. Mm. It's quite dull, actually. But she also was, way, in a manner of speaking, waylaid by legal reporting in the process of writing it. Was she that she? Um, oh yes, while she was doing yes, because yes, that's it. why it got postponed and yeah. got later and yeah. later and later. It, and one has the um, sense of her, in a sense, being m more interested. More interested, exactly. I think she was. I think she was. And the interesting thing about the, her oldest biography, which was published in two volumes in this country. Um, was that it suddenly comes alive when she's talking about her own memories, her own mm. experience of being mm. with Aldous and Maria. Mm. And other than that, it's, it's long uh, interviews which she transcribed from 10 gramophone records or, mm. <laughs> you know, in, interviews with BBC, mm. so it's, t it's pretty dull. That you mentioned another figure who comes in and out of your book and obviously must have been a remarkable person was Maria Huxley. Oh yes, she was. She was a sort of saint. Sounds it. Uh, and she completely saved Sybil. And when Sybil's mother, you know, was in this terrible state of morphine addiction, um, it was really Maria who rescued her and who was a kind of both a, a mother figure to her and a lover. So mm. what more could you ask? Um, in the process of writing it, do you, did you change your view of her? You, you, you knew her, you said, for 15 years, but inevitably in the process of writing you must have learned a great deal about her. Um, did, did your view of her change? Well, it enormously expanded. Mm. I mean, Sybil, for I suppose obvious reasons, I mean, what she loved talking about to people like me, she didn't know very well, was, was her early life and, you know, Germany and her parents and so on. Um, and I had no idea about this huge cast of friends mm. and lovers um, and the amount of travel she'd done and um, her archive was bought by the Harry Ransom Center in Texas. Uh, and I went there for three months and just sat reading those letters with my eyes on stalks. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to be such a rich history. Hmm. Did she keep all her letters? 
Well, what was so wonderful was because she didn't learn to write at all until she was eight. Mm. And then her writing was, she was taught at her convent school and it was so bad, nobody could read it. So very early on, she learned, she learned to type. And so all her letters are not only typed, but she always put carbon in. Mm. So the, the Ransom Centre collection has not only all letters to Sybil, Sybil's letters. So both sides of the correspondence. Which was mm. wonderful. Mm. I mean, there were other collections as well in British Library and mm. University of Los Angeles and so on. But I mean, it's a huge, huge collection, and it's wonderful. And the the two great losses is that the grandmother with whom she lived in Hamburg during the First World War went on writing to her, um, and her letters all survive, and they're wonderful. But Sybil's letters to her were burnt, right. were destroyed. And the other thing that all Sybil's letters to Maria Huxley were destroyed when the Huxley's house in California caught fire so and everything was burned. But she didn't have copies of her own letters to the To Huxley. those not, no, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And the grandmother, what became of the grandmother? She killed herself because she, she was Jewish, she was living in Berlin during the war. Um, she'd run out during of During the money. First War? During the First... Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, wait a minute, what am I talking about? No, the second war, because the first war, Sybil was living, stayed with her in Hamburg for part of the time. Mm. Um, and her parents were in Berlin with the... But the grandmother, you describe a meeting in Amsterdam. That's right. When I was that, but the, which is mid-30s? No, she, it wasn't. She killed herself before the outbreak of the second yeah. world war, but she had lost all her money. She had been very rich and she was living in terrible circumstances in a horrible little dark room. This is in the, um, by the mid-thirties? About the mid-thirties. Yeah. And she was also having to cope with her daughter, Sybil's mother. And then after Lisa died um, and she completely ran out of money and she realised as a, as a Jewish German woman, she was in deep trouble. She then killed herself. Mm. It's interesting this also because uh, she's a woman who, is, as you say, was very rich, but she had not, at the period when she was rich in living in Hamburg, she hadn't particularly thought of herself as being Jewish. No, she didn't like to think of herself as Jewish. She was blonde and she was mm. blue eyed, like Sybil. And she, she, no, she didn't, I mean, she never, you know, didn't want people to know she was Jewish. So by the time she's in poverty in Berlin in the 30s, she has been identified by society socially. Yes. She's and she suddenly, she is thoroughly Jewish yes, in terms of, exactly. of how she's seen exactly. by the Whereas society. before, I mean, up to and even after the First World War, there was a sort of rich cultured Jewish yeah. society that was more or less accepted yeah. um, but as, as you say as during the 30s it got worse and worse yeah. and yes she realized she had no hope of survival I think. Again it's a, it's a terrifying awful, trajectory that awful, you described yes. and, and, and it must have um, been terrible for Sybil. Terrible. Um, how did Sybil find out about her grandmother's death? She was heard about it I think from Maria Huxley and someone I can't remember must have it, got in touch a with A sort her. of roundabout way. Yes. 
but it was it was a t uh, it was I, I think in a way that the grandmother poor woman had no choice yeah. I mean the alternative might have been even worse yeah yeah but the the, the um, how it impacted Sybil one uh, one can't sort of imagine no, in she a never, way I don't think she ever awful. wrote about it and I think I mean, the, there are one or two references to her grandmother. Uh, her letters to her grandmother haven't survived, but there are one or two references. And she was always rather impatient about her. I, I think she was fond of her, but she found her a bit overwhelming. And mm. you know, I don't know that she was that close to her. Mm. But she's part of the European backdrop, which informs Sybil's life and, and, yes. and her intellectual yes, and mental exactly. furniture. Exactly, and she was a highly intelligent woman, yeah. you know, and she took Sybil to galleries and concerts and, you know, she she, she really helped educate her mm. right from the beginning. Why do you think when she's so, self, in a way, self-consciously European, um, why did she form such a strong attachment to England or Britain? Was it was it England or was it Britain? Was she interested in anywhere? It else? was London, I London. think. I think because she'd started living in London when she was, a, I mean, a teenager, um, when she was sent by her mother to England for her, her education, and she made friends very easily and quickly. And I think she loved the sort of the literary life, and it was somehow e an easier life than the life she lived in Rome, or the life she lived in Paris. In Paris she was entirely dependent on her ex-lover, Esther Murphy, or friends. Whereas in England she was living, you know, she had her own little place. Mm. And um, a wide, wide circle of friends. And I think she found it, I just think she found it easier. So the, the conjunction of independence and a sort of freedom that she Yes, enjoyed. and she she liked to think of herself almost as English. I mean, English English very early on became her first language. And English was the language in which from the beginning she was determined to write. She didn't want to write in German, certainly. She didn't want to write in French, she didn't want to write in Italian. It was English. Mm. And I think that somehow she she hung on to that. It was important to her that she had this kind of English identity mm. and she was Mrs. Bedford after all. <laughs> yes and it was the, it, her, her sense of literary heritage was, yes. was English literature primarily. Yes I mean she was very very well read in French mm. um, and German not so much Italian but, but English was, the, was her prime interest mm. in literature certainly. And and her relation did, did her relationship with Germany ever improve? You describe how she, I think you used the word loathing, or perhaps it's her word, um, earlier on in the forties and fifties. Yes. Did that ever improve? Not not really. I mean, she was taken by a friend to Berlin when I think she was in her seventies, um, and she went once. To Hamburg with the Literary Society, that was all right. But going back to Berlin was was very frightening for her. No, she never, she never really mm. wanted to. She never wanted to hear German spoken or be mm. in the company of Germans again. Mm. Mm. 
um, which I, again I suppose is uh, a feature of a lot of people of that generation. Yes, well understandably. Fortunately we don't have to yeah. experience. Um, um, I think at that point, um, Selina, I should say thank you very much indeed well, thank for you. giving us this time. Well, and, um, <laughs> thank you. I look forward very much to selling the book, and I should mention—I uh, should mention first of all its subtitle, which is "An Appetite for Life," which is a bracing subtitle for lockdown. I think um, very salutary. The book is available at twenty-five pounds, and um, give us a call or email us if you'd like it. Meanwhile, there are. Uh, she, she, Selina has signed book plates for us, which are inside the copies of the book, so they are signed. Thank you very much indeed, Selina. Pleasure. Thank you.